Let's go ahead and get started. So, uh, everybody, uh, hope everybody's having a good day today. Let's see. I hope everybody's having a good evening. Uh, things are good here in St. Louis. I'm glad to be podcasting again. It seems like it was forever since the last one, and I'm good. I'm glad to be talking to the Saints again across across the entire globe, across the internet. And I know we got a lot of faithful listeners out there, and I just want to say I do appreciate all of you. I uh, do enjoy talking to you, even though I don't get to hear your voices. I know you're all there listening with me. But uh, I tell you what, if we were face-to-face, I'd be giving you all a big old hug or or a handshake or uh, something along those lines. But uh, can't do that. Can't really reach through the computer and uh, grab all of you (laughs) and give you all a hug. But uh, I just want to say I'm really thankful for you. And... uh, I'm thankful for a lot of things. We do have a lot to be thankful for, all of us. You know, we who do believe the truth, we we haven't been left to ourselves. The Lord has been so kind to us. He's not only sent us a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who produces assurance and causes us to rest, rest and relax in the message of the gospel, to rest in the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only done that, but he's also given us a family of believers in whom we have daily fellowship with. Folks who love the truth and believe like us. And the Holy Spirit surely is in our midst. It's in our midst tonight. And I'm thankful to know all of you to be able to talk to you and have communion with you and our Lord. And um, so... you know, I, I can't tell you how much I value all of you because you know, last week I was on Facebook and I was brutally attacked and rebuked by someone I don't even really know. He lives here in St. Louis and is of the Reformed persuasion. You know how the old Reformed people can be sometimes. And uh, he, you know, he friend requested me on Facebook. It seems only to do opposition research on me, and he evaluated me. Pretended to be a friendly fellow and then kind of jabbed the knife into me, calling me names and worse, even misrepresenting my belief system in order to make his point. And this type of activity, it's 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 disconcert it's disconcerting to me. It's uh, I admit it makes me angry, very angry, and I know I know it shouldn't, but you know it. Uh, I don't care if people call me a moron. This guy actually did. He said he called me a moron or a heretic because they disagree with me on something. That's okay. You know, call me a moron or a heretic if you disagree. What I don't like is when you misrepresent my views and care a little about genuine dialogue and care only about the scalp you now have on your Facebook wall. This guy scalped me, figuratively speaking, and defriended me on Facebook. And then bragged about it on his wall, and then he blocked me so I couldn't even see it. I don't. This tells me he doesn't really care about the truth. The uh, he's only about making himself look good in the eyes of others. But the truth is, he kind of looks like a Pharisee to me. And the thing is, though, this guy lives here in St. Louis, and I'd be happy to talk to him, but you know, he's not interested in dialogue, and I find that to be sad. And. Uh, Let's see, you know, there's another guy in St. Louis, though, I didn't, he uh, reached out to me, he's going by the name Gordon Clark on uh, Facebook, and he says he likes my stuff, so uh, 
hey, you never know. Somebody's out there is listening. I'd, Gordon Clark in St. Louis down near Arnold, Missouri, if you're listening tonight, I just want to say hi. I'd like to actually get to know your real name sometime, and maybe we could actually talk on the phone or something. <laughs> All right. And uh, anyway, this guy here in St. Louis who took issue with me, uh, he took issue with one of her not Ilyasov's posts regarding love for the brethren. And I'm just going to read a short Facebook post that Renat wrote that apparently has uh, these uh, Pharisees up in arms. And he quoted uh, John 13.35 to start his little article. It says, By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And uh, this is our way of invisible saving connection to Christ becomes this is a way our invisible saving connection to Christ becomes visible, manifest to outsiders, outsiders, all men. This is what Renat says. Christ says, "They will not. They will know that you are my disciples if something is manifest among you." Please note that Christ does not say that all men will know you are my disciples. That a, if you beat on the anti-Arminian drum all the time, b, if you grill each other endlessly with tests of orthodoxy, or C, if you have endless debates among one another. No, but by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 13.35 And this, ladies, this love, ladies and gentlemen, is something very practical. John, 1 John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. All right. And now that was that was Renat's article. And I'm just going to say, this apparently has the work, this apparently is works assurance, according to the gospel defenders out there. No, no, I'm sorry, friends. This is not works assurance. This is called loving the brethren. Okay, it's a natural and logical thing that happens after you believe the gospel. Okay, we will love the brethren. It happens, it just happens, and when it does, it strengthens our confidence that we are in the company of the saints. All right, this is not assurance of salvation, this is not faith. Faith is assurance. Okay, we have our we have no confidence in our works or our love for the brethren, okay? But our love for the brethren is a fruit of our assurance. It is a fruit of our faith. But to the gospel defenders, they're ready to string us up. <laughs> they're ready to burn us at the stake for this. Uh, and in some ways, they're no better than a drive-by shooter with their pithy and snark comments on Facebook. But, uh, you know, these gospel defenders, though, they're now out there not only attacking me and Renat, Blah, 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 blah. They're out there uh, going after now people that are dead and alive. People like John Gill and Henry Mahan. Finding things that such and such said that seem to go against, go against the whole of their teachings. Okay? Finding one comment out of uh, a, 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 a lifelong, uh, uh, lifelong ministry of preaching free grace. You find one comment and you're gonna just gonna focus on that and say, oh my goodness, would you believe what Henry Mahan said or look what this John Kill said. Look what John Calvin said. You know, why are we doing this guys? You know, why are we uh you know why do we go 
Why do we look for things that seem to go against the whole of their teaching and then bashing them for it? Why? Why do they do that? Why do we do that? Oh, you might say to yourself, Oh, Brandon, we're defending the truth. We're defending the gospel. This is an important ministry. Actually, no, it isn't. You aren't defending anything. You're just boasting on your Facebook wall. You know, Augustine once said, The truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It'll defend itself. All right. And that's my rant for today. <laughs> okay. So, I know you guys didn't know that when you sign up for this podcast, you're going to get some rants, but I'm not preaching a sermon. It's a podcast, so I got a little bit more liberty here. <laughs> All right, so that's enough of my ranting. Let's go ahead and uh, get into the message for today. And uh, the uh, past several messages that we've been going over the doctrines that will get you labeled as hyper-Calvinist. So, I labeled the series on sermon audio as hyper-Calvinism is the truth. Well, I'm sure that's going to trigger a lot of people out there. But, uh, you know, but anyway, uh, we've already had five messages on it. And the first one was on what is true evangelism. The second one was on duty faith. The third one was on the free or well-meant offer. The fourth was on common grace. And the fifth is what I, it was on what I deemed common wrath. And today's message, the sixth method, the sixth message in this series, will be on sovereign reprobation. And the title of today's message is the question: Does God predestine people to hell? Does God predestine damnation? All right, one of those two. We'll figure out what it is later. And if you answer in the affirmative to that question, that yes, God does indeed predestine people to hell and damnation you are most likely going to be called a hyper-Calvinist at some point. Now, now, not as much as holding to the other doctrines, but uh, somebody out there is going to call you one. So, just get ready for it. I'm just telling you that. Okay. So, uh, this is going to be brief. Predestination to damnation also goes by the name of double predestination. It also goes by the name equal ultimacy. And by equal, it is not in number, uh, but purpose. All right, Just as God has purposed from eternity to redeem an like number of people to salvation in Christ, he has also purposed to predestine a number of people to damnation outside of Christ. Now, we don't know what those numbers are. I don't concern myself with them so much. But I do know that he has indeed predestined to damn some people to hell. Alright? And uh, to the ears of most people, this doctrine is absolutely horrific. Alright? It hurts their ears to hear it. Okay? But this doesn't need to be the case. I, I do have a disclaimer, though. I, I don't believe we are to emphasize sovereign reprobation the same way that we emphasize election to salvation and Christ's redemption. All right. There are some that go around constantly talking about God's reprobation and damnation. They love to stand on a street corner with signs emphasizing God's hatred. And I think this is wrong. You know, while it is indeed true that God hates people, that is not the central theme of Scripture. Okay? 
sovereign reprobation does not appear to be equally central in God's purposes or in God's purpose. And that's just my opinion there. The covenant of grace is the central theme of scripture. And I think that should always be our emphasis in worship and the emphasis in our preaching. But nevertheless, sovereign reprobation is indeed purpose directed. And last but not least, it's not neglected in scripture. Okay. I believe it was a I believe it is a true and God honoring doctrine that I'm going to try to make the case for for today. So please bear with me. I'm not very good at making these cases. This is just, you know, I'm an amateur. I'm not a professional preacher. I don't get paid to preach. I don't get paid to give my opinions. I, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm, I work at the post office, okay, and I have a website. So take what I have to say with a grain of salt. But this is what I've come to believe over the years, okay? And uh, so just putting that disclaimer out there. I, but I believe this is my own opinion here. If you get this wrong, this, this doctrine of reprobation, I think it's symptomatic of a wrong way of thinking and uh, may also indicate that your understanding of the gospel could be wrong as well. I'm not saying it will be, I'm just saying it could be. All right, so if you wouldn't mind, if you would go with, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 9. Ah. Good old Romans 9, okay? One of the most neglected chapters in the entire Bible. It's like uh, kryptonite to a free willer. <laughs> okay, just run around with Romans 9. <laughs> but, you know, I remember when I was a free willer. I'd, uh, uh, I, I spent a good chunk of my life as one. I, I'd... Uh, I wasn't converted to the truth till after I got out of college. Before then, I was just, I was a stark, raving mad free willer. I mean, I tried to get people to make confessions. I, you know, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church, and even back in the 90s, I was writing computer software trying to get people converted. But uh, anyway, I remember when I was a free willer, I'd get to this chapter in Romans 9, I, you know, because I was diligent to read my Bible. And this this chapter doesn't make any sense to me. I'd look at it, and my eyes would boggle, and then I'd uh, wonder what really what it really meant, and then I'd just move on because I couldn't handle it. It was too uncomfortable to read. Uncomfortable to read. And uh, but now, having been given the gift of faith in Christ and confidence in sovereign grace, it makes perfect sense to me now. So uh, let's go ahead and read it, okay? And I'm going to re read verses 1 through 23. I know it's a lot, but uh, I think it's important to, to, to go through this now. Romans 9, starting in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience, lie, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now it is so the word of God hath taken not effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. 
Neither, because they are a seed of Abraham, Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy, call be, shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, and these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children not for the children being not yet born, neither have done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Alright, and pay attention to that word election there, because uh, you don't see the word reprobation, but I think there is uh, something else implied there. Okay, and it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, by Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. One of my favorite passages of all time. Verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formeth say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. All right. As you can see here in this passage, the primary argument is God is sovereign in election. Okay, he's sovereign in salvation. If we are believers, it is because we were fashioned as vessels of mercy. Okay. Prepared unto glory in Christ. Rejoice in that. But this passage also contains a very sobering truth. And that is there are also vessels of wrath. They are, uh, are corollary. Just, just as God has prepared vessels of mercy, he has also purposefully prepared vessels of wrath. But the question I'd like to address today is how? are God's vessels of wrath fashioned for destruction. Most uh, Calvinistic churches would not say that God actively fashioned people for destruction. All right, I, I once sat in a church that used to preach that, even though they were sovereign grace Baptists, so-called. And most Calvinist churches would not say that God actively created vessels of wrath. No, they say that's a byproduct, okay? They would say that God, of course, actively causes his people to be saved through conversion. 
but that he passes over the rest, and they are reprobate because his grace is not dispensed unto them. Okay? They are left to their own devices, they say. In essence, they would say that these people are responsible for their reprobation, not God. They try to get God off the hook. They try to say he's only uh, the, the person who's predestined the good things. All right, But I object. The text is clear here. The text says that they are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. They don't fit themselves. No, God fits them for destruction. The question is clear then. Who, who are you, O oh man, to question God? Does not God have the sovereign right to create something for destruction? He is the creator. He actively causes all things to exist, even those that were made to be destroyed. Now, all right. And Romans 9 is the, the text that I go to every time I want to talk about re reprobation. But there are some other passages in the scripture. We're going to check them out here. Uh, you don't have to turn with me. I'm just going to read Joshua 11.20 to you. All right. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Okay? It doesn't say it was of, up to them to harden their own hearts. No, it was for the Lord to harden their hearts. Okay? That they should come against Israel in battle. That he might destroy them utterly. And that they might have no favor or grace. <laughs> but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay? It's the Lord who hardened the hearts of the Gentiles. There's nothing here that indicates that God withdrew his grace to cause them to be wicked. No, it says very clearly that he hardened them. Okay? And Exodus 4.21 And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Ah, this seems so clear to me. It's so clear. You know, uh, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he wouldn't let the captive Israelites go free. Okay? God caused him to be this way, okay? And again, this lines up perfectly with Romans 9. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Romans 9, 18. Again, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? Romans 9, 21. Rome, Exodus 14, 4 says the same thing. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be on, honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. You know, why did Pharaoh continue to rebel in spite of all this coming his way? Knowing that his continued resistance to Moses and God would result in even more death and misery. Is it because God withdrew his rest his restraint, his grace? I I can't agree with that. I I'd say no. I'd say it's because God hardened his heart. It's because that's what the passage says there. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. Alright. 
<laughs> Pharaoh suffered greatly, and the more he suffered, the more he rebelled. That's not a natural thing for people to do, okay? It, well, it's natural because God causes them to be that way. But uh, folks try to say that God doesn't really apply people to damnation. He only predestinated the good things, like salvation, and those who aren't predestined to salvation are reprobates. Yet Jude 1.4 says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I can understand why that teaching is unpopular. It's a sobering reminder of God's sovereignty. Okay, If God is not responsible, but man is responsible for accepting an offer, for ex exercising duty, and that God damns someone by withdrawing his grace, well, then it's not God who is ultimately responsible for salvation. It's man. And men love to be in control. They love to be in control of their lives. They like to think that all men are in control of their lives. And they think that the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God, makes God a monster. And they don't want to be ruled by a monster, they say. They say it makes men robots, and they don't want a puppet master. What a poor argument to make. God can do whatever he wants, okay? doesn't matter how you feel about it. Take your emotions out of the equation, okay? God's the creator. And we have no right to tell him what he has done is right or wrong. Who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? <laughs> Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. You know, this is, people say, oh, this God makes God the author of sin. Oh, this makes God the creator of evil. You know, God is the one that defines what is right or wrong, okay? And a lot of people say this makes God, you know, the author of sin. But can God sin? What kind of question is that? God defines sin. And if, and if he says something is sin, it is. And if he says something is evil, then it is. God defines goodness and righteousness. And if he says something is good, it is. And it doesn't matter what we think. God cannot sin, but he can cause sin. And indeed he does. He can cause evil. He's the first cause of all things. And in doing so, he remains spotless and perfect. When he hardened Pharaoh, he did so righteously. All right, His purposes cannot be judged by us. And if you dare call him a monster over this, or try to remove him from the equation, I'm afraid you're sinful in this. Okay, It's an evil thing, evil thing to say God cannot actively harden folks. That's my opinion, all right? <laughs> and it's... You know, it's also, I think, an evil thing to say God is not the cause of all things. It's an evil thing to deny God's absolute sovereignty. Now, I'm going to move this chair up because it keeps on, uh, I need a new chair. It squeaks. You know, it shrinks on me. Anyway, anyway, it. I think it's an evil thing to try and shame someone as a hyper-Calvinist 
for daring to speak the truth about God's sovereign reprobation. All right. God's sovereign reprobation is hated so much that even Arthur Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God, had had this chapter on sovereign reprobation removed by a later publisher. The Banner of Truth Publishing Company removed this chapter because they, they disliked it so much. Chapter 5. And I, I find it hilarious and sad all at once. What? Why won't those who aren't God's people believe the gospel? The ultimate answer is because God doesn't want them to know it. You know, he blinds them to the truth. He hardens their hearts so they can't hear and understand the message of grace. And no amount of gospel pleading is going to make them understand. You might get a reprobate to make a false confession, but you can't cause them to look to and rest in Christ alone for all of their righteousness before a just and holy God. Okay? You can't cause them to look to Christ for all of their salvation. Their heart has been hardened, and they would much rather look to and worship the work of their own hands, okay? their own minds and affections. They would rather practice idolatry. Romans 11, six is, verses 6 and 7. And if by grace it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. All right, the rest were blinded. What do you think that means? That God just left them to blind themselves, or that he blinded them? This is simple, folks. This is not uh, hard stuff. This is not rocket science. Yeah, but when you start coming up with all kinds of excuses to explain this verse away, you end up sounding uh, stupid. All right? <laughs> Let's just take it. Take the passage for what it says. He blinded them. The rest were blinded. Okay, and uh, John 6, you know, is a such a powerful passage. Uh, John chapter 6. And I want you to see something there with me. And uh, I know most of you read this before, but just, uh, you know, turn with me in John chapter 6, verse 60. After, you know, after Jesus explained sovereign election to his disciples, saying that the only way to believe the truth and to be saved was to be one of his sheep. Okay, to be chosen for salvation. But the natural man hates to hear this, okay? They are hard words for him. Okay, and many of Christ's disciples felt the same way, and they said as much to him. Okay, they said as much to Jesus. And I'm just going to read this here. John 6, verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore I said unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back 
and walked no more with him. <laughs> Folks are going to reject the doctrine of God's sovereignty because it doesn't appeal to their flesh. Okay, that last verse. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That verse is so telling, okay? It demonstrates to all what is still in the hearts of men, okay? And it's the same spirit that led some of Christ's disciples to stop walking with him that led the banner of truth to remove Pink's chapter and reprobation from his book, okay? It's indicative of a heart of stone, one who wants to glory in the flesh and not in God's absolute sovereignty, okay? Yes, this is a hard saying. It's only though it's only hard for those whose hearts are hard though. Okay? And the only way to hear and rejoice in God's absolute sovereignty is for God to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. Alright, we're gonna we're gonna turn uh, one more to one more passage here. Alright. And John chapter twelve. Starting in verse thirty six. John twelve thirty six. And I'm going to try to wrap this up here. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Then they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Alright. Huh. You can't get any more clear than that, folks. This was a fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 6 and verse 9. Okay, Isaiah 6, 9. Go ahead and look it up later. But uh, once again, you know, this, 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 the Bible says that God has blinded the eyes of people and hardened their hearts. They cannot believe because God has actively caused them not to believe. He doesn't want them to believe. He wants them to remain ignorant of the mystery of the gospel. Not all of them, but just some of them. So he hardens them, okay? And this doctrine, oh yeah, it can be terrifying downright terrifying if you believe it's only because God I'm sorry if you believe it's only because God has caused you to believe all right it's only because God has not hardened your heart it's only because you are redeemed by Christ in his earthly work and ministry God has made you to differ from those who don't believe if you believe it's because God wanted you and made you for this purpose, okay? He made me for this purpose. How awesome is that, okay? Okay, and I repeat, you weren't drafted into the kingdom, okay? You weren't wooed into it. If you believe, you were made for it. Think about it for a moment. Just think about it. Think how awesome that is. <laughs> Rejoice with me that forever we will worship our Lord together in paradise, with all of his elect saints. Why? Because we are vessels of mercy. Okay? We were made for that. <laughs> Alright. And that's what I'm going to... I think I'm going to end on. Okay? 
And I think that's about all I got to say on sovereign reprobation. Again, it's an important doctrine to study and to understand. However, as I said earlier, reprobation does not take the primacy of focus in the scriptures. It's important, but redemption in Christ is the primary focus for the display of God's glory. God is indeed glorified by the destruction of the wicked, those made to be destroyed. You know, and I I don't understand why or how exactly. I, I just know that he is the sovereign creator, and he is indeed deemed to be glorified in this way. And I don't question it. You know, after all, I'm clay. You're clay. We're all clay. He's the potter. Okay, it's his sovereign right to do as he pleases. And maybe one day, all that reasoning will be made known to us in a much further clarity and detail. Okay, maybe you can, maybe through further study, you'll find out. Okay, however, I, I, I do know that whatever reason it may be, I believe it is right and good. Okay, God is on his throne. He's the king. Okay, and that is who I worship. Whatever good or bad may come my way, may I be given the ability and heart to worship him. Okay, and I hope you would join me in that, in that same sentiment. I, uh, I plan on podcasting again next Thursday, continuing this series on the truth of so-called hyper-Calvinism. Okay, and I want to hit on, I think I'm going to try to hit on every doctrine that's going to get you labeled as one. All right, so we'll figure out what we're going to hit next week. Okay, so if, if, you, if you're enjoying this, or maybe if you're not, join, please join me again next week. And, uh, and uh, I hope you all have a good one. Have a good week, and I will talk to you later. I, uh, I'm going to be in the chat if you want to. And if you guys ever want to talk to me on the phone, ask any questions. I know I, I had a, a nice talk with Ed, F, um, F Grave. I guess I guess that's how you pronounce your name, Ed, last name. And uh, so if you guys want to talk to me, I'm here. I'm just uh, I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I'm just a guy with a website. So you can call me and talk to me. I'm not going to bite your head off. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Gospel blessings. Good night.